0: Welcome to the Fibroid Foundation podcast. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Erica Marsh. Dr. Marsh is a friend of the Fibroid Foundation. She is one of our trusted medical advisors. She is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan Medical School and chief of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Fertility. Dr. Marsh's research is amazing. It focuses on uterine fibroids and reproductive health disparities. And she seeks to understand the challenges of fibroids from a 360 degree perspective by investigating, addressing their pathophysiology, their epidemiology and clinical impact through a patient-centered lens. And patient-centered is just wonderful because that's our focus as well. So Dr. Marsh, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Satiria. It's an honor to be here. You know, I'm a huge fan and we both are are fibroid warriors. So um, I'm always happy to to be a part of anything that's fibroid foundation related.
0: Thank you so much for that. And and we're a fan of yours as well. And uh, we rely on you for great information and to be able to uh, chart our course for um, helping the patient community. Um, so today I thought it was interesting because I think your background is just incredible. Um, if you would share with us more of what brought you to medicine and specifically reproductive medicine.
1: Yes, I, um, I had a, a, a little bit of a circuitous journey to medicine, to medicine. Um, uh, I had always been fascinated in a kind of romanticized way with, uh, uh, with becoming a doctor, but but um, while in college, um, kind of saw the pre-med scene and said, okay, that's not for me, um, and ended up trying to pursue healthcare through other means, specifically on the business side. Um, After college, I did management consulting for a few years and had an incredible time, learned a lot, but really at that point realized that I, I wanted to take care of people and not companies. Um, and went back to school, took my pre-med courses, and uh, went to medical school, and, and, and years later, here I am now. So um, like I said, it was a security journey, but I think the destination was always, always the same.
0: That's really interesting, and I find, I'm sure that you found that those, those detours here and there.
1: Exactly. Had
0: their own incredible value as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, like I said, I learned a lot from, from spending time in the business world, specifically the uh, strategic management space. Um, And also I think another uh, um, kind of planned detour that helped a lot on my journey was the opportunity to spend time in the research space while I was applying to medical school and during medical school, because that Really opened doors for me on understanding the importance and power of research, and also um, the importance and power of who was included in research, who was represented by the research, and who was benefiting from the research. So I have to credit um, uh, my my uh, my research mentors. Um, uh, to my early research mentors, Dr. Janet Hall in particular, who, is, I, who I worked for at Mass General Hospital um, while I was applying to medical school. And I think her, the foundation that she helped me lay um, in terms of setting high, a very high bar for, for excellence and quality has stayed with me on my research uh, journey and um, basically is a big reason why research continues to be a part of my Um, my career to this day.
0: That's really interesting and and you have led some incredibly groundbreaking uh, studies particularly around health disparities and uterine fibroids. I know when I first met you you were working on a huge study which was like the first of its kind at that time and I think probably even since um, in uh, specifically in fibroid research, can you tell us about a couple of your studies? And and did any of the findings in your um, hallmark studies shock or surprise you?
1: Um, uh, absolutely, I'm always happy to talk about uh, talk about research and and um, kind of the doors it opens and 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 the minds it opens. I think. One of the first studies that really was an aha moment for me um, was uh, work I did while at Northwestern as a, as a relatively new faculty member. I was seeing a lot of, of young African-American women in particular um, who were coming to me not only with symptomatic fibroids, but symptomatic fibroids that they had had surgery for already and they were in their 20s. Um, and some of them had had two surgeries already and were just in their 20s. And when I went to the literature, you know, most of the, most of the papers on the epidemiology of fibroids um, uh, showed that the, the, the racial disparity that we've long known about um, kind of popped up in the 30s and particularly the mid to late 30s. Um, but because I was seeing so many young people African-American women with fibroids, I did a study where we recruited about 100 women, half were were white, half were black, who were between the ages of 18 and 30. Um, They had no symptoms of fibroids, uh, and we did that intentionally. We selected that way intentionally so that we weren't biased for recruiting a group that had an artificially high prevalence of fibroids. So these were uh, young women who had normal menstrual cycles, um, uh, were using a normal amount of product each month, bleeding a a normal amount of days each month, um, had no symptoms of fatigue or or anemia. And we had them come in for a pelvic ultrasound um, and ask them a few uh, demographic questions um, and health related questions. And what our study found was that um, the disparities we see in fibroids don't start in the in the late 30s and early 40s. Um, they actually start even before women know they have fibroids. So what we found was that um, while about 7% of the white women that we, we scanned uh, with an ultrasound had fibroids between the age of 18 and 30, um, 26% of the African-American women um, had fibroids. Um, And um, no no, uh, fibroids were seen in women between 18 and 20. We started seeing them when when women were in their early 20s, so 21 and older. Um, And there was an age-related increase um, uh, going from 20 to 30 in Black women and a pretty steadily low prevalence of fibroids in, in white women. And so what that showed me was that the the, you know, the 89% prevalence that you hear about in Black women by the time we're 50 starts in our early 20s. Those fibroids start to develop. They're not symptomatic, you know, necessarily. Most women, none of the women in my study even knew they had fibroids. They had to actually not, you know, they we asked them if they had fibroids, and if they said yes, they were actually excluded from the study. So, you know, these were women who were asymptomatic. To their knowledge, did not have fibroids. And we found that 26% of the African American women have fibroids uh, um, um, at this young age. Those fibroids, you know, grow over time. Most fibroids grow, some don't, some even shrink over time. But for the ones that grow, we you know, they become problematic and lead to all types of of uh, you know life disrupting symptoms. Uh, that you and your followers well know, you know, fatigue, uh-huh. anemia, um, uh, uh, soiling of clothes, uh, lightheadedness and dizziness, um, let alone the emotional and, and uh, mental health impacts of feeling um, depressed, isolated, uh, um, dealing with poor body image, those types of things. So, so you know, this is a problem that starts early in life. Uh-huh. Um, and we have to, to address it as such. And um, as we think about ways to combat fibroids and in fact to prevent fibroids, which is the, which is what we, the space we all ultimately wanna to get to, we have to realize that that journey starts not in the 30s and 40s, but actually in the, in the early 20s.
0: That's really um, powerful information because you described my journey you know, I didn't know at the time that I had fibroids when I was probably around 20, but looking back with my symptoms, I could, you know, tell that something was starting to
1: uh-huh.
0: change in my body. And I actually had my third fibroid surgery at Northwestern um, because, as you described, women um, have had procedures that were not effective or not comprehensive. And that was me as well. So the, the most problematic fibroid that I had was not removed until 10 years later at Northwestern. And you think about that, I had had two procedures since the diagnosis, but it, you know, by that time I'm going into surgery number three and, um, that one problematic fibroid was finally removed. So, you're looking at 10 years of suffering and heavy menstrual bleeding. And so, um, what you've uncovered with that study is going to help a lot of women moving forward. And I hope so. We um, have started to focus on college campus outreach mm-hmm. to be able to inform women about the potential, you know, um, onset of fibroids and or endometriosis and kind of what to look out for to better care for themselves and um, to hopefully not be as encumbered with it um, at all. Um, so that, that's really good information for our listeners to hear. And so that they can share it with others as well, or, you know, their daughters or sisters or, you know, um, granddaughters, because this helps us all to thrive.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I
0: remember one of my first conversations with you, um, you recommended or told me about um, a medical therapy that I was not aware of, and I ended up asking my doctor for that medical therapy. I I actually asked more than one, because when I moved, I had to ask another doctor for the same medication, Mm -hmm. and I'm that medication helped me is helping me through, uh, perimenopause or helped me with perimenopause when I was symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And it's just not talked about. And I, I often think about back to that conversation with you where, you know, you were just talking about various therapies, but after I was able to, um, use that therapy, take that therapy, it helped me tremendously. It helped me avoid another surgery. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder why even now, some of these medical therapies are not widely utilized or prescribed. Do you have any uh, any thoughts
1: around that? I think that's an important question, um, Ceteria, uh and a hard one to answer, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think part of the challenge is that um, Fibroids have historically been considered, you know, very much bread and butter, OBGYN. And there was a time in women's health where the expectation was that women would just get hysterectomies when their, you know, when their quote female parts started misbehaving end quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, a lot of that mentality has changed um, in women's health. Uh, I think a large part due to the fact that there are a lot more female providers and that. Um, and also due to the part that that training has has changed and there's uh has become a lot more patient focused and patient empowering um uh but i think um you know there's been a long history and quite honestly present of fibroids um being addressed by 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 surgery and specifically hysterectomy and you know in fact fibroids continue to be the leading cause of hysterectomy in the United States. Um, I think there's some women for whom uh, surgery and specifically hysterectomy is the perfect treatment for. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 it has transformed the life of many patients. Um, uh, um, and I think that there's some patients that uh, are not good candidates for surgery, uh, want to, to continue to have the option um, to bear children and carry a pregnancy um, and or just simply, even if they're done with childbearing, um, they, they just want to keep their uterus. You know, they don't want surgery. And I, I think we have to be um, a lot more intentional as a field about saying, these are all of your options. Um, and tell me what your goals are, your life goals are, and we can overlay um, these options with your life goals and uh, understand which ones may be more appropriate given your life goals or less appropriate given your life goals. Um, I think within that, uh, um, you know, talking to patients about the pros and cons of medication therapy and medical therapy, um, medical therapy can be um, uh, can be something as straightforward as taking uh, an NSAID, a nonsteroidal um, anti-inflammatory drug, mm-hmm. like um, uh, you know, like ibuprofen, um, for example. Uh, it can be um, uh, uh, taking a birth control pill that helps with bleeding. Um, It can be getting a levonorgestrel-releasing IUD that can help with bleeding. Um, It can be uh, uh, taking um, an injectable medication that can help with bleeding and transiently shrink fibroids. It can be an oral medication that helps with bleeding by um, also putting you in a, in a, um, a state similar to menopause and lowering estrogen and progesterone levels. Uh, which which are the two hormones that that feed both the fibroids and feed the tissue called the endometrium that we shed uh, each month during our period. So I think there are a lot of medical options. Um, there's some medical options like transexamic acid that um, target uh, our 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 um, how we how we clot blood in our body and and can um, lower the flow of blood during our menstrual cycles um, uh, uh, I mean there I'm not naming all of them but there are a lot of different classes of medications that we have to offer uh, uh, patients now and I think it's in I think some of the challenges is that you know some of them you can't stay on for for you know more than six months but some of them you can stay on for longer and um, uh, The important thing is to share with the patient what the options are, what the risk and benefit of each of the options are, and let the let the patient decide what uh, what works best for them in their lives, given their goals.
0: I I want to put that answer on a loop because. (laughs) so comprehensive. I know that uh, our listeners will get a lot out of that, as did I. So thank you for that. Um, so in, in, in a recent article or blog that you uh, wrote, uh, you talked about potential risk factors for developing fibroids. Can you touch on a few of those?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, two of the, the most significant risk factors we've talked about already, and that's Um, age, and race. Um, uh, And those are probably the two most known risk factors. Mm -hmm. I think that we also know that um, uh, an increasing number of pregnancies actually appears to be protective against fibroids. Now, we're not, you know, that's not to say that we're encouraging, you know, women with fibroids to go out and get pregnant. Just to treat their fibroids, but that's an association that we've seen. Um, uh, We know that uh, beer um, uh, can, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, several servings of beer can um, is is a risk factor for fibroids. We know that being overweight, specifically being uh, uh, having obesity, is a risk factor for um, fibroids, and um, obesity is disproportionately. Um, Exist disproportionately am- among certain racial and ethnic groups, mm-hmm. um, and that likely contributes to the disparity. It's not the the necessarily the driver of the disparity, but it contributes to the disparity. Uh, we know that um, higher levels of um, or we know that progesterone and estrogen um, feed the fibroids, and we and and. Uh, um, so that they're not risk factors per se, but um, uh, being in a position where you have increased estrogen uh, and increased progesterone levels uh, may contribute to, to fibroids. Um, and we see uh, that uh, African-American women um, most notably have higher estrogen levels at certain times of the menstrual cycle. Um, uh, than um, when compared to to, uh, Caucasian women. Uh, um, There's some epidemiological data that has shown association between um, uh, having um, high blood pressure and having fibroids, uh, having a history of STIs and having fibroids uh, as well. Um, And again, those are are associations, Um, so we don't, you know, they haven't proven causality yet, -hmm. but they're um, associations that have been um, observed in in large epidemiological studies.
0: Wow. Um, I find um, the higher estrogen levels with um, women of African descent at specific times during the menstrual cycle to be higher than some other ethnicities to be absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there might be a lot there. Wow, that's a lot to ponder. Um, (laughs) So um, one of the key messages that I think really needs a lot of uncovering is the emotional impact of suffering with fibroids, mm-hmm. um, and you raised that in your blog. And thank you for that. Um, and, you know, I know I didn't really know the full scope of what I was dealing with when I was highly mm-hmm. symptomatic. Um, I, you know, because your your every all of your movements are scripted based on where you can go, where you can't go. Um, you know, finding the right sanitary supplies and, and feminine care supplies, and it really um, takes over your quality of life. And so um, I'm brainstorming on ways that we can help our community. I know that telling stories is very important. Having a community of support is very important. Absolutely. Um, Do you have any thoughts on um, that you'd like to share on what shape emotional support of fibroid patients might take moving forward?
1: Um, I think a big piece of that is is honestly just acknowledging that fibroids do have an impact on emotional health, Mm -hmm. Um, and something that I think it's important for us to do is. to uh, one, acknowledge that, and two, incorporate that um, into a new interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary approach to fibroid care. Okay. Um, And move away from a model where it's just um, about, you know, what treatment am I going to get? Am I going to, you know, what procedure am I going to get to treating the whole woman? Um, Because some patients are are less focused on, on um, treatment than they are on just wanting to feel heard Mm
0: -hmm. um,
1: and wanting their journey acknowledged and um, how we care for patients and how we heal them um, may or may not involve therapy, you know, medical Mm -hmm. therapy or surgical intervention. Um, We found and one of my qualitative studies that specifically looked at emotional and psychosocial impact that almost 100% of the women that we talked to reported some type of psychological distress from their fibroids. Um, and half of them reported a sense of helplessness. About a third of them, a little more than a third of them reported negative feelings about body image, um, negative feelings about sex, uh, their sexuality. And um, I think, in some ways, most concerningly, about a quarter of them reported uh, a lack of um, a lack of support. So I think that um, you know, even though, and I've said this time and time again, even though fibroids don't don't typically kill women, they create a lot of morbidity, a lot of 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 women not being able to lead their full lives Mm -hmm. and be their best selves Um,
0: absolutely um, wow that's profound
1: and we have to we have to uh you know we have to step in Mm -hmm. and say it's it's uh that's not okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know that's that's not okay and um you know one of the quotes that i used in my paper from one of the subjects um uh is, you know talks about uh, the 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 participant says I think that there's this aspect to having fibroids that some women feel that is a secret topic and you don't discuss it until you have had the surgery. I think there needs to be more communication so women feel comfortable just to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's from a participant's voice, you know, from someone who is a who is a patient somewhere, um, and and I think it you know, she couldn't have been more correct. We have to create a space where where women, um, and, I, and I I want to be clear, I'm using the word women broadly to when I refer to fibroid patients, I realize that not everybody who has fibroid self-identifies as a woman. Um, um, and so I want to be uh, clear that I, I understand that and am and, and inclusive, um, uh, uh, being inclusive of anybody who's born with the uterus, mm-hmm. um, when I talk about I talk about fibroids, but um, uh, I think we have to to move beyond you know surgery check, you know medicine check. Mm-hmm. That we have to treat the whole patient. That we have to empower women to to, um, which involves educating them, making them aware, um, uh, to, to um, engage more in the process um, uh, and to, to choose their own treatments, to choose the best treatments for them um, and to make sure that they're in a, in a patient care provider patient relationship where there's trust. Um, um, because I think that is the foundation that allows for all the other things the you know, the safety and asking questions, the being educated, the, the feeling empowered to, to, to speak your voice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, uh, but I, I, you know, women can't, this fibroid should not be a mark of shame and having heavy menstrual periods cannot be a mark of shame. I get it. They're not sexy to talk about. They're not, you know, nobody, you know, what, even when you're amongst your, your crew, your squad, you know, it's not like, Hey, you know, how many tampons did you use today? Exactly. You know, how many packs of pads did you go through? Uh, it's even, in, uh, even amongst your closest friends, you don't, it's not something that comes up because um, there's, there's a, there's, a, I, I, I think culturally and almost anthropologically, we've been socialized that you know, uh, in a very negative and, and, and self, um, uh, negative self-image way around periods in general, whether they're normal or they're abnormal and particularly so when they're abnormal. So, you know, we have to encourage women to come out, talk about it, right. share your stories because you're, by doing that, they're not only helping themselves, but you're helping other
0: women. And you helped us today because those statistics um, hopefully will help a lot of uh, our listeners to exhale because it really, when you talk about those huge numbers of um, people experiencing the same symptoms and the same emotions around those mm-hmm. symptoms, uh, it's eye-opening um, and um, I appreciate you sharing that and for really um, designing a research study that really delved into the heart of what we experience and feel um, so that we're no longer, you know, feeling that isolation. So I think I, I'm, I, I'm very reassured by what you shared that that's going to help to move us forward in a lot of ways um, and we'll be... Uh, this broadcast will post during our anniversary week. So hopefully, um, a lot of listeners will have an opportunity to hear it. Um, so where can, uh, our listeners find out more information about your practice, Dr. Marsh?
1: <laughs> well, um, the university of Michigan medical, uh, school, um, website is probably going to be the best, um, source of information. Okay. Um, um, in terms of clinical, you know, my clinical enterprise, the OBGYN department at the University of Michigan Medical mm-hmm. School or, or Michigan Medicine, which is specifically the clinical clinical enterprise, um, is very committed to treating women with fibroids, um, across a number of divisions, not just my division, which is reproductive endocrinology, endocrinology and infertility, but also the, um, women's health division, which is the general OBGYN division, and our minimally invasive surgery um, uh, group, uh, as well as our general gynecology division. So um, we have uh, um, the team in place to really provide uh, you, know, multi, you know, 360 degrees of that care, um, including social workers, um, um, you know, we partner with our hematologist uh, um, as well to help women who, who have, you know, severe anemia. Um, that's great. Get to a space where they feel better and, and feel well enough to actually contemplate the options versus just being so fatigued and so wiped out that they're in a place where they say, I don't care anymore, just do what you need to do. And um, that's not a space of empowerment. That's a space of, Of defeat
0: and that's not okay that's not okay so and that is and a a practice that is really patient centric and is covering all of the aspects of our care because uh, it is so important to not make decisions while you're not feeling well and if you're helping the patients to get to a place where they're stable and can make an educated decision because there's a lot to learn about you know, fibroids diagnosis. I think that you are really um, creating an environment that's really beneficial for all of us. So I, I appreciate that greatly. And, and thank you so much for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ceteria. And thank you for the incredible work you are doing with the Fibroid Foundation on behalf of um, all of us. Uh, we appreciate you. We appreciate your hard work and your commitment um, to this uh, condition and um, to, you know, the many of us who have, who have had to deal with uh, fibroids in our lives, either personally or via family members and friends. So um, thank you.
0: Thank you so much.